in Psalm 73, if you want to stick a thumb there, then that is going to be uh, a helpful thing for us to do because we're following the life of David. Now, um, oh, there we are. So, and the, the, what we're talking about today is the end of Saul. So we're really going to spend time uh, in uh, Saul's story. If you'll notice, uh, you know, we're normally in Life of David, but then we get to Life of Saul, and then the, the heart is darker, the letters are bigger, Saul has the best letters, and, uh, and we're talking today about how the story ends. And it's interesting because Saul has been the villain of this story for a very long time. Saul has been... Uh, in power for decades uh, and, and hunting David and, and living contrary to the word of the Lord. Um, and without interruption, and, and while there have been set, uh, setbacks, uh, based on what we've seen from Nabal, as Nabal tried to tie his allegiance to Saul, as we've seen from David being on the run and feeling that his only recourse was to live amongst the Philistines, lying about his relationship with Israel, um, Based on all evidence, Saul has not been shaken over these decades. Saul is doing fine, and the Lord's anointed, as David calls him, is still doing well. So as we begin this story of, of how, uh, as we begin to look at how Saul's story ends, I want us to start this by looking at Psalm 73, because it's really going to help, I believe, frame the way that we approach this, just as we look at the story from David's heart and also from our own heart. So this is how Psalm 73, and Psalm 73 is not a Psalm of David, it's a Psalm of uh, Asaph, uh, who we don't know much about, but he was a, a songwriter in, in ancient Israel and a, and a worship leader, and, um, and he wrote this, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my foot had almost slipped, and I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked." They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence, and from their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth and therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. And if we're to be mature followers of Jesus, if we're, if we're to be mature just human beings, we need to wrestle with this reality. That, that it's very easy for us to look at the wicked and say that, oh, they are free of care and amassing wealth. And this isn't just an issue in the ancient world. It's an issue in the world today is the gap between those who are rich and those who are poor gra grows wider and wider, and we are rich in North America. We're all aware of that. But as the 1% the, the, the of ultra-rich people seem to grow more and more distant from uh, from the realities of, of our lives, and, and, and as more and more people feel like they're pushed to the margins, envy and anger are natural responses. And it's very important for us as followers of Jesus and as a church to acknowledge that the Bible is not naive about these issues. The Bible uh, does, does not live in some alternative reality where good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. The Bible is, is a vibrant book that deals with our reality, which is sometimes the wicked go on amassing wealth. 
that it's easy to see people who are ignoring the Lord and, and seem to have uh, bodies that work perfectly well and all of the nicest things and all of the ease of life that we could possibly imagine and want and where people succeed despite their wickedness or even because of their wickedness while kind people struggle. And it's, this is a group of people that understand that quite well and David understands that quite well where Saul has lived in power and opulence and peace while David has been on the run. You can ima- even though this is not a Psalm of David, you can imagine David saying these words. And he, even he says multiple times, why do my enemies continue to prosper? And we, while we might not have the ease of saying, why do our enemies continue to prosper? It, easy, it is easy for us to look at our own lives and our own hearts and find sometimes when, where we're saying, why are the wicked also always free of care and go on amassing wealth? So, it's in light of that disposition that we have within us to be envious of the arrogant and to, be en- uh, and to, to, uh, to envy the prosperity of the wicked, to, to, to get that in our heads as we look at this story. So now the Philistines, now we're in 1 Samuel 31. So now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. And the fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. And Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. Now this is interesting. This would have been very common in the ancient world, that if you took a king prisoner, you would torture him, you would, you would dismember his body, and you would use that as a, a propaganda tool for both your own people and your enemies. But it's interesting. When Saul fell... The big beef that God had with him was that he disobeyed the Lord and didn't destroy the king of the Amalekites. He instead took the king of the Amalekites prisoner and was kind to him. And the reason why he was doing that was because if something ever happens to me, I want to be treated kindly as well. So maybe if I treat this foreign king kindly, then maybe if I disobey the Lord and treat the king of the Amalekites kindly, maybe that will cover for me when I eventually fall. But isn't it interesting that when Saul finally falls, the thing that he thought was going to keep him safe, that he had disobeyed the Lord and honored the kings of the foreign countries, what is he worried about at the end? These uncircumcised fellow will come, fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. Wasn't that supposed to save you, Saul? Wasn't your own ingenuity supposed to save you beyond, beyond obeying the Lord? But the armor bearer was terrified and not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. And when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together on that same day. And it's interesting in the contrast that happens here because in the ancient world, based in the other literatures that we have in the time, dying on the battlefield at your own sword rather than at the hands of your enemies was considered an honorable death. That was the, the best that you could hope for in the ancient world was to, to go out in a blaze of glory, killing a bunch of your enemies, and before they can destroy you, falling on your own sword. And it's interesting that, that Saul takes that path of death. Within, in the ancient world, with the other kings of the area, would have been an honorable and noble death, but not for God's people. 
For God's people, ever since the beginning, God gives life. God gets to take life away. We don't take that into our own hands. That's why we're so strong on murder. So an honorable death was not, might have been to die at the hands of your enemies, as the Lord calls you, but it's certainly not to take your own life. And it's interesting that even at this point of death, we see how Saul's heart has not been formed by the Lord and by the instruction of the Lord and by the Torah and the word of the Lord, as was, as was commanded to kings, but rather... But rather, Saul's heart has been formed by his position. Saul's heart has been formed by being king, by being an authority, by being powerful, by being wealthy. Those things were more powerful forming agents than the, than the word of the Lord. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled and the Philistines came and occupied them. And the next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa, and they cut off his head and stripped his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. And they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. And when the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men marched through the night to Bethshan, and they took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh, where they burned them. And they took their bones, and they buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. And this is how the story ends for the great king Saul. Despite the amount of time that he spent as ruler of Israel, despite his position, despite his wealth, despite all of these things that he felt were going to keep him safe, there was no escape from the wrath of the Lord. And this story is really important for us to remember when we find ourselves like Asaph envying the arrogant because we see the prosperity of the wicked. It would have been very easy at many times in David's life to look at Saul and say, how come everything goes so well for him, Lord? Why, do, why doesn't your judgment ever work out against him? But the reality is, this is how the story ends. The story for people who oppose the will of the Lord and who crush people and who oppress people and value their own wealth more than they value the well-being of others, their story ends in death and destruction. That is the way of the wicked. It might last, it might take a while to get there, but one of the things that we can trust that is confirmed in the story of Saul and that is continually confirmed to us throughout Scripture is while wealth and, and prosperity may last for a time, while you may be able to stick your nose up at the Lord and to flout his ways for a short period of time, all things come home to roost. And this is what the, the writer of Psalm 73 realizes as well, because even in the midst of this darkness, he finds himself distracted and saying these things as he watches the will of the wicked, that surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new, brings new punishments. And it's easy to see Asaph or ourselves, in the midst of even knowing how the story ends, to, to succumb to a creeping cynicism. It says this effort to follow the ways of Jesus, 
to be a disciple, to apprentice to the ways of Jesus, to love our enemies and to do good to those who hate us, to proclaim the good news that we can repent and that the world is different and the world is headed into a different place because the kingdom of heaven is near, that that all of these things that we do are wasted time and energy because all of the wicked have brand new Range Rovers and all of the wicked get to take fancy vacations every year and all of the people who don't care about this only care about themselves and take from others they have nicer things they have nicer lives they have nicer uh, they have nicer realities than I have to live with they don't deal with the same stress than I have so so why am I wasting time with this why am I wasting time on a Sunday morning when I could be home in bed eating pancakes to come and have myself reoriented to, way, to the ways of the Lord. Why am I wasting my time trying to get along with this group of people we call church that, that, that are in so many ways so different from me? Why am I bothering any of this? Why does it, any of it matter? But if we had spoken out like that, if we allow ourselves to fall into that trap, I would have betrayed your children, says, the, says Asaph. It's interesting then in the mind of Asaph and in the mind of Scripture, not speaking truth is to betray the Lord's children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. It's the presence of the Lord that changes Asaph's mind. It's coming in to where God is. And that doesn't mean this room. That means wherever God is and God makes that place holy. It can be this. That's what this ought to be. But when he enters into the sanctuary of the Lord, he sees things clearly. He finds himself reoriented to reality. That surely you place them on slippery ground and you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. Saul still looked like the powerful king every moment right up until he was destroyed. In a moment, it's gone. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Surely they disappear like a dream when one awakes. The kingdom of Saul disappears in an instant. And we find ourselves in the same place, and this is repeated throughout Scripture, even when Jesus tells the story of the foolish ruler who builds up barns and says, let us take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And then God says, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. The reign of the wicked is always temporary. The reign of the wicked and the success of the wicked and the success of those who ignore the Lord and oppress others is always temporary. But the justice of the Lord is eternal. Asaph continues, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. This is interesting. In the midst of being lost, in the midst of, of, of envying the wicked, in the midst of not understanding the way that the Lord is working, in the midst of being a brute beast, yet I am always with you and you hold me by my right hand. Even when we're confused and we find ourselves being with that creeping cynicism growing up inside of us, God is with us even then. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and all earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion 
forever. It reminds us of truth and of goodness and of hope. God is with us in the midst of all of this to tell us what is real and what is fake. And the riches of this world and the success of this world and the prosperity of the wicked and all of the stuff that is accumulated is, is, disappears in an instant. But what is true and real and valuable is what God is doing in and among us. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell you of all, I will tell of all your deeds. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Like Jesus, when, it, when his disciples stood before him and he demanded, he said of the crowd, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so many people ran away saying, we want nothing to do with this. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, what about you? Why aren't you leaving? And the disciples say to him, where else can we go? Only you have the words of life. In the same way, we find ourselves saying, we have made the sovereign Lord our refuge against evidence to the contrary, against believing that the things of the world will satisfy us and make us, make, us, make us whole. We believe that the sovereign Lord is our refuge. And even though it might be difficult in the short term, even though it feels, it feels dumb and silly and weak in the short term, even though we feel like it's not making a difference in this world in the short term, we follow it for the long term. And we believe that, that, that God is good and his justice will reign and that we will tell of all his deeds. And this is always a choice that we have. Based on the information in the world around us, based on everything that we see in scripture and in the news and in the world around us, we always have, to choice, have a choice to make. Are we going to spend our time looking at the prosperity of the wicked and become envious of them? Or are we going to remember how the story ends? Because we've seen in Saul how the story ends for those who ignore the word of the Lord. It ends in death and it ends in destruction. And it ends in those things that you were afraid of overtaking you anyway. It ends in those things that you thought that you were avoiding becoming those things that destroy you. But we also know how the story ends for those of us who love and serve the Lord. And this whole story ends for us with God's dwelling place now being among the people and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be more, no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The old order of things is that the wicked succeed. The old order of things is that those who ignore the Lord prosper. The old order of things is that you can, you can have your Range Rovers and your all-inclusive vacations and you can get them by walking on the poor. But in the world of the Lord and in the world that is to come, justice is going to reign. And when all things are made new, it is those who have aligned their lives, who have been, become disciplined and apprentices to his ways and accept the salvation of Jesus that are going to be saved and have life now and for eternity. The challenge is to remember that. The challenge is to have joy in the midst of this. The challenge is to keep in front of our minds, even when we feel small and insignificant and weak and alone, that God is with us and all of these things are working together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. There's no, easier, there's no easy way to do that. There's no easy way to make sure that that's front and foremost, but it is a choice that you can make. 
It's a choice of what you choose to look at. It's a choice of what you choose to value and how we allow our hearts to be oriented by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, help us to remember how the story ends, both for those who ignore you and for those who are submitted to you. Help us to remember how you work. Help us to trust you when we feel small and insignificant and weak. Help us to trust you when we feel envious for things that we don't really need. Help us to, 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 to ignore that voice that says that you don't care and are not providing. And, and we ask that, that, you, that your word would be clear to us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. These are not easy things to remember all the time, God, in the face of sickness, in the face of, of financial difficulties, in the face of, of, of all of the mayhem in the world, God. But we trust that you are working and that you are making all things new and that this story for us who follow you ends well. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.